This is episode 80 of The New Disruptors. It's like money you can't hold with Chris Higgins and Adam Cornelius. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Cards Against Humanity, which is helping to underwrite our new indie ads. These are short, inexpensive ads designed for independent artists, makers, programmers, and others. Thanks to Cards Against Humanity, which just launched a site where you can buy directly from them. This includes their bigger blacker box and their 2012 and 2013 holiday packs, the profits for which are donated to charity. Our indie advertisers this week are In Flux, a new compilations album from Brave Wave by video game composers. Get 10% off with a coupon code we've hidden later in the show. Storming Mortal, an interview podcast with technological celebrities. Rainblocks, a fast-paced iOS puzzle game featuring charming pixel art. B, that's B-E-E, an issue tracker and timesheet app for the Mac. Chroma Videos, a professional promotional video service for Mac and iOS app developers. Wordundrum, an iOS game that's like Sudoku with words. And The Novelist, a quiet, introspective game. You'll hear more about each of our indie sponsors later in the show. Thanks also to our direct patrons, Gravity Fish, Mike Manzor, and Giorgio Tool for supporting us through Patreon. You can back this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air, just like this, and send you mugs and t-shirts. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says, wow, such crowdfunding. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Adam Cornelius is a documentary filmmaker, and Chris Higgins is a journalist. They've previously worked together on Ecstasy of Order, The Tetris Masters. They've just launched a Kickstarter to fund a movie about the rise of e-currency, and they've got a lot to say about the journey behind that they've already been on and the one that's coming up. Hey, Chris and Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to have you. This is one of these neat inflection points because you guys have already gone through all sorts of interesting stuff. And this is your next big journey, which you're well underway on in terms of, of filming. Um, maybe we should start at the at the top and talk about your new project a little bit and then back up and come back around. What, what's this movie you're you're working on? What's the title of the next film? So it's called it's called Coined: The Story of Cryptocurrency, and it is an examination of these alternative forms of uh, of currency, like Bitcoin. Uh, Dogecoin has been big in the news lately, and we've been working on it for about five months now, and got to a point where we need more money. <laughs> we're tired <laughs> of paying for everything ourselves, um, so we're going to Kickstarter to to try to raise a community around this thing. Um, and primarily, what we've shot so far is Dogecoin stuff. Yeah, we were. Uh, it was really fortunate because the guy who programmed Dogecoin lives right here in Portland, and I actually met him at a Bitcoin meetup. So that's where it started. That's great. And, and uh, so the this is a subject a lot of people know a lot about, and a lot of people know nothing about too. <laughs> is uh, is this is the, the the Bitcoin world? This is electronic currency that has a cryptographic underpinning. So there's a lot of technology interest in it did you find that there's interest beyond kind of a, a geeky techie community that that sits at the core and is interested in things like cryptography and uh and uh you know moving bits around over the internet it was most apparent to us when we went to new york city to film this thing called the, the doge party um which was a 
a celebration of the community that had formed around Dogecoin. So to explain this, we have to describe first that Dogecoin is a kind of virtual money. Um, and it's become very popular online, particularly on Reddit, uh, where it's kind of a, it's like a Reddit native type of currency. And the culture that has emerged around Dogecoin is one that is extremely concerned with sharing and, inclu- and inclusivity. Um, so at the time we went to New York in like early February, they were funding like the Jamaican bobsled team to go to the Olympics. Um, they were funding water wells in Kenya by doing online fundraisers. So essentially you you kind of create or mine, as it were, this this digital currency, and then uh, you give it away and good things happen in the world. And so when we found ourselves at this uh, this party, it was an interesting mix of people. I mean, part of what we saw were people who were there literally to hang out with dogs, uh, with Shiba Inu rescue dogs. And so there was a whole section of the, you know, the sort of party floor where people were just going in to pet a dog. And that was one thing that um, Ben Dornberg, the guy who put together the party, pointed out to us. He said, you know, for, for introverts who spend all their time online, we wanted there to be dogs, uh, like a, some, a thing you could just go and interact with on your own terms. And there were people who were there uh, for the community, for the sort of online community becoming physical in this party. There were definitely cryptography nerds there. There were definitely libertarian people there. There were Occupy Wall Street people there. There were Bitcoin millionaires there. It was this soup of any imaginable kind of person. Um, there was a guy in a Chewbacca suit. Um, so it was a surprising diversity of people who were brought together either by their interest in cryptocurrency or dogs or sharing or politics or money or you name it. Yeah, it's it's a good question because... You know, when Chris and I first got involved, we were interested in the technology as, you know, from the geeky level ourselves. And I didn't think it was a movie. I was just doing it uh, as a hobbyist myself. And somehow something clicked specifically with Dogecoin and just me going to a Portland Bitcoin meetup. When I went to a Portland Bitcoin meetup, I just, the energy was off the charts. It was crazy. I mean, the, the, it, I, I hadn't been in a room with that much passion and excitement in years. So, and then, you know, combined with the factor that Dogecoin kind of has this humorous face and this whole other dynamic of sharing and fundraising, I thought maybe this could be a documentary because I'm always scouring for, you know, new topics. And it's tough because every time you find a new topic, often there's already three or four documentaries about it, which we'll get to on another question, probably. Well, that's what I was wondering, too, is that... Uh there's so many more people making small films and, and, uh, or funding them through alternative ways like uh, crowdfunding methods that I would think it would be harder to find things. I see this as a journalist, and Chris, I'm sure you do as well, that you find an interesting topic and you think, this would be great. No one's written about this. Oh, no, there are a thousand articles. <laughs> and right. you know, occasionally I find something that's unique or that I can write uh, – I just wrote a large piece about now satellites where um, the scope of what I wrote I think is larger than what anyone else – uh, did so far and and but that's that requires you know a lot of support and then that's where you get into that full length documentary thing it's like if you want to do something unique now you have to go out and make a full length movie you can't make a short or you can't make a you know made for PBS style thing yeah I, I, we we arrived at our first interview uh, with Billy Marcus the guy who encoded Dogecoin it was perhaps three weeks four weeks after he had invented the currency. 
And he was pulling up these graphs and saying, this is currently whatever it was then, a $30, $40 million market cap thing. And so... As a as a writer, you ask a you ask a subject, you know, how did you make this thing? And his answer was, oh, I spent four hours in my underwear early one morning just putting together a coin. Um, and we can talk <laughs> about how that actually works if you if you want. And then a, a couple of weeks later, it is a global phenomenon that actually is worth real money, and there actually is a real community that is forming and and doing things in the world. And to me, I said, well, that's that's insane. And amazing. Let's go to New York. We went to New York and like the Doge party ended with uh, a paper mache Doge head being put on the bowl of Wall Street. So there was a march. <laughs> we, we didn't know that was going to happen either. That no. was a secret. That and was so the we, big secret. Yeah. Our big thing was, okay, we're just going to fly on our own dime to New York. And, you know, we thought we viewed it as a risk. You know, you know a lot of these conventions... Are, are really boring, but we said, well, we'll take a chance on this. And it just kept getting better. We got there and it was a hundred feet from the New York Stock Exchange at this place called the Bitcoin Center, which was weird because it was just this giant sort of party space that was supposedly devoted to Bitcoin. And then, you know, we suddenly were filming this parade to the Wall Street Bull to put this paper mache <laughs> head on it. And I'm thinking, how lucky could we be? I mean, this is really you know, worthy of a documentary right now. And uh, by the way, you can watch that video uh, on our Kickstarter ca campaign page uh, when it's up. That's hilarious. Yes, because you've got your video trailer up and some uh, extra videos there to show people what you've some of the what you've shot so far. Uh, so let's back up for a minute too. So this is the current project. I want people to know what you're what you're working on because this is the thing that's occupying all your time. Uh, but Adam, you've gone through this before. In terms of uh, the nuts, the bolts. I know Chris came in later in Ecstasy of Order, but uh, uh, where did that film come about? Because I would think that a film about Tetris would, um, you know, you think about video games, be like films about Rubik's Cube or something like that might be uh, as interesting. But then there's all these examples of like the Spelling Bee movie, the movie about uh, Scrabble, the movies about crossword puzzles. Like there's there's a movie about a lot of different games that have mass interest. And, and I was wondering how you got sucked into uh, you know, making a, a documentary about something that seems as seemingly, you know, individual, like something people play on their own um, about something like Tetris. Yeah, well, you know, now competition films are practically a genre unto themselves. Um, but when I it's funny, if you really want to go to the very beginning, I think it was the Scrabble documentary. There was actually two of them. It was the one called um, Word Wars. And I saw Word Wars in like 2005, and that's actually what inspired me to kind of reboot my filmmaking passion. Because I re I'm a big game nerd. I always have. I love every game, chess, Scrabble, poker, you name it. And at the time, I had really started to get interest in you know, vintage arcade champions like Billy Mitchell, which was just sort of something I was reading about on the internet. And I said, oh, this is perfect. I'll make a movie about arcade champions, you know, sort of modeled after the Scrabble movie. Uh, you know, not long after I discovered that there was multiple movies, one of them being King of Kong, that were already in production. So I shelved that dream and then, but always kind of wanted to do a competition film because it's, it's really, I mean, frankly, it's really an easy way to get started in documentary because you have this tidy climax and, you know, it's kind of a, gives you this insurance that something's going to happen, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, the one game that I knew that really the one game that I was really good at myself was Tetris. So that was a natural pick. And 
this guy named Harry Hong, who's in the movie, he was the first person to be recognized by Twin Galaxies for maxing out NES Tetris, which was the game I was familiar with. And Twin Galaxies was for a long time. I guess, is it still down as we talk? Now Apparently, again? It, it's, it's back. Oh my gosh, it's gone up and down quite a bit uh, <laughs> yeah. the last couple of years. But it was for you know decades, the... Um, for listeners who don't know, it was for decades. It was the the essentially authoritative source for uh, game scores, like right t- top uh, from competitions or personal performance. And people had to submit videotapes, which then other people would watch to make sure that they hadn't been cheated or edited or games hadn't been modified and all that. And that's right. Uh, that's and it's featured uh, significantly in King of Kong. Also, if that's where you want, you, you go there and you know that person is you know ostensibly. The person who's achieved the best score. So uh, Tetris, uh, I'll link people, uh, they can read an article Chris wrote for the magazine about playing to lose, about uh, about Tetris competitions that he's refereed at. But it seemed like, you know, even after having read those articles and and, uh, watched what's happened in that field, Tetris still seems like an odd subject because it's so much of someone staring at a screen absolutely locked in focus for hours and hours at a time. How Mm -hmm. do you create the compelling story behind something that, that you know is that where there's no real action for exceedingly long periods of time, um, except people doing a repetitive thing. Well, that was my goal. I mean, one of you know, you know, I don't mind saying that you know I watched King of Kong and some of the other gaming documentaries, and one of the things I always felt was disappointing about a lot of those movies was that they didn't really explain why is this person so good at this game. Like, what have they? What sort of breakthroughs have they made that makes them special? And I always was left hanging on that and curious about that. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to solve that problem. And I think I did. You know, there's a series of short kind of instructive graphics that I think explain pretty well what the central drama of Tetris is, which at least in classic Tetris, it's waiting for the long bar. You've got your Tetris set up, you're waiting for the long bar, and then it doesn't come, and then you're on damage control. And it actually does create a lot of dramatic tension and my goal was that by the time you were watching the tournament at the end, you would have the knowledge you needed and sort of the to be able to perceive what the players were going through. And I think to some extent I achieved that. I mean, some people just obviously there's a limit to how many people are going to want to go on that journey with you. But those who do are usually pretty interested. So well, and Pit- Tetris is a game that everyone's played, too, is that there's so many versions of it. it's been out there for so long. It's not a game that you have to explain to most people, although the strategy for most people is going to be. Um, unusual because most people don't master the game. Yeah, and part of the structure of Adam's film is that he went across the country and met with these masters before the competition happened. Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's see what it's like to meet a Tetris master at home. Like, how does this game fit into their daily life and how does it affect relationships and stuff? And in doing that and in showing... Uh, sort of the kind of the host of the film, Robin Mahara, who was, by the way, placed, I guess, was it third at the Nintendo World Championships in 1990. Um, so, by the way, a, a very good Tetris player himself. He would effectively uh, interview and speak with these people, and you would get to see. Well, let me let me back up. Basically, <laughs> it's not a movie about Tetris; it's a movie about people who play Tetris really, really well. And so, Tetris is kind of a a MacGuffin, like it, it instigates the action. And the desire to be good at Tetris certainly motivates these people individually. And then as you you get to watch as they discover that they are not alone in their solitary quests, you get to see them say, oh, wow, there's a world. Like, this is a world that I belong to and I didn't realize it was organized. And it begins to sort of take form in the movie. So you get to see 
the formation of effectively a community of Tetris players. And that's, to me, that's the social kind of heart of the film. And that's supposed to be every documentary film, no matter what it's about, at the heart, it's supposed to be about people because you can't sustain a movie unless it's a, you know, a 1950s instructional videotape and, or a film strip <laughs> intended for classrooms or, or 16 millimeter <laughs> film. You can't sustain something without uh, narrative. So ostensibly, it seems like you're trying to find a subject that's compelling. But if you don't have people in it, you can't tell the story, can you? Well, you, I think you have to have the right subjects or characters um, who are the prism through which you can explain the topic and tell the story. You know, you can't have this overview of a topic. I mean, this is a challenge we're facing with cryptocurrency is uh, obviously, you know, you're going to have some overview type stuff, but ultimately, ideally, you want to learn about that topic through the story of a person. And uh, uh, that's, yeah, that's the best way to go. Um, there's always exceptions, but that generally speaking, you're right. That's what you need for a good documentary. You want a journey too, right? Is that? And I mean, we uh, I've talked to the uh, filmmakers behind indie game, the movie, a couple of times, and they, I don't want to say they, well, they did luck out because they followed several people. They did a bunch of interviews for people doing indie games. They knew a few that were promising, but in the end, spoiler: the film's been out. I think I can say this. The two, <laughs> pe- you know, they they narrowed it down to only focus on two groups. You know, one auteur and one two-person team, and those became two of the best-selling independent games of all time, I think. And uh, that is luck. There's no – I mean, you know, they talked to people who are, are already had some of the best-selling independent games. You can find those people because that happened. But, um, I, you know, I asked somebody uh, – a friend of mine was involved in the um, Spelling Bee film. He, he worked on that movie. And I said, how did this all work? And they're like, well, we followed, you know, X people. And it was 12 or 15 or something. And I forget five stories are primarily in the movie. Like, oh – but with indie game, they followed two groups and they got really lucky. To I mean, the narrative would have been there anyway. But the fact that the payoff was, oh, and they made a fortune, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, is and a, that's that's, that's a, why that movie's so popular. Is because, well, one of the reasons is it's a rags to riches story, and I think that really resonates with everyone. Um, and I think the fact that sure, if they had followed ten independent game designers and all their games just sort of sputtered out. You know, there is a gamble involved, I guess is what I'm saying. But I think if you put in the work and it's almost sort of a I have a certain strange faith that if I work hard on my films that somehow the universe will reward me and something cool will happen. (laughs) It's like it's a little bit like fishing. I think it's like if you go in the boat every day, it's the same thing with writing. If you're looking if you're looking for story ideas, if you take the boat out, you will find fish. It's a matter of how many boats you have. (laughs) And like part of the, the indie game, the movie story, I think it's so that is a little bit behind the scenes is they followed more people initially. I think they had to winnow down to get to these people yeah, where, but they picked yeah. them before the game was right. done. That's the, I mean, right. You know, cause that is the thing. If you, if you can get a, and I know it's very difficult to do this, but if, and we'll talk about budgets here in a second, if you can get a lot of money up front, which is very difficult to fund a documentary, uh, even though many documentaries have done very well now. And, you know, especially with the post release market and, and, uh, sales and streaming and so forth, um, then you could follow a lot of people and your odds of success, right? The many boats are, are higher. It's when you uh, have to winnow it down. And I think the circumstances, Adam, that you've set here, the fact that there was a championship, there was an event. So someone's going to win and you have to hope that there's enough human stories along the way to make that work. But it's not like no one's going to win at the end. There's going to be a winner in this competition. Sure. And so you have a natural event that allows you to do that, which seemed like uh, seems like you can't always plan for that. But that was part of your selection process. 
Absolutely. I think that it's a great stepping stone. Now I have more confidence in myself and I feel that I, I've made all the mistakes you can make and I've learned a lot. <laughs> so I think I'm, well, that's not true, but <laughs> I, I'm sure there's plenty more mistakes we can all make. It is sort of a safety net to have that competition at the end and, you know, feel like, okay, you know, we might not have, might not have the most incredible drama, but, you know, somebody's got to win this thing and somebody's got to lose. So you have a built-in ending. And I think not many other genres of documentary don't necessarily have that luxury. So it's a little more of a challenge to take on one that doesn't have a built-in climax. Let me tell you about the first of this week's indie advertisers. It's Influx. This is a new compilations album by Japan-based Brave Wave. It's a super indie music label. This album brings a lot of video game composers together, including those who composed Mega Man, Ninja Golden, Silent Hill, Spelunky, and even featuring guitars by Tim McCord of Grammy winners Evanescence. Here's an excerpt from Wish I Were You. Here's a bit from Bounty Hunter. And you might like Blue Star, which features Tim McCord. You can find the entire album at the short URL bit.ly slash in-flux. That's bit.ly slash in-flux. And you can go to bravewave.net to find their other albums. With the coupon code DISRUPT, you get 10% off Influx. Give it a listen. Next up is Storming Mortal. There are a lot of podcasts that are trying to grab your ears, but Storming Mortal features in-depth interviews with interesting people and technology about everything they do, including Merlin Mann, John Syracuse, and that guy, John Moltz. The host, Andrzej Tomitz, lives in Slovenia and brings an informed outsider's view to the technology industry. Visit stormingmortal.com to listen and subscribe to his RSS feed. The latest episode features my friend and yours, Jason Snell. Next, we have Rainblocks, a fast-paced puzzle game for iPhone and iPad that features charming pixel art by Mega Man composer Manami Matsume. Rainblocks combines sliding puzzles and color-matching gameplay for a fun and frantic twist. Watch out for ice, mud, and more as you slide the blocks around to set up high-scoring combos. Rainblocks is available now for free in the App Store. You can find out more at letsplaying.com rainblocks. And now let's get back to the podcast. Right. You have to construct the narrative in a different way if it doesn't have an, you know, an obvious conclusion like this. And well, I think we could, let's, let's uh, do the meta breakout now too, is that, you know, you're, so you're following people who are on their own journey. And this is, there's no, I guess the thing about competitions like this is that there's no ostensible reward except coming out on top. I know there's some money in some areas, but, um, but it's often really just a, the reward of, of achieving, a, you know, that kind of score in that world. And uh, we step back a, a moment. You've got your own journey that you needed to figure out how to fund this from your own pocket in other ways and produce this. You know, you have a operation that you set up to make a thing about this thing. It sounds like it started a little slow. How did you – and you started at a point where I know the um, the actual technology you needed, you know, editing software and cameras and so forth that uh, we weren't at a point where – 
even several years ago, would this be vastly more expensive to achieve the results you wanted for quality? So you have a somewhat of a technological advantage, but money is still an issue. How did you get into this in terms of planning, especially with an event at the end that you needed to attend and, and provide the climax? Uh, well, I did want to tell that story. Um, it goes back a little further to uh, in 2009, I just wanted to make a movie about Harry Hong uh, because in my mind, he was the greatest Tetris player. And uh, I literally just flew to L.A. and hung out with him for a weekend and shot some stuff. And right around the time, I think that was right when Kickstarter was first beginning. So I was when I was actually received a beta invite to do a Kickstarter from a friend. And, you know, in, in 2009, I don't know, I think it was just starting. And, um, you know, I was really modest. I didn't understand Kickstarter. I thought the idea of like bunches of random people on the Internet giving me free money was kind of preposterous at that time. And, uh, you know, just said, hey, I need $1,500 to finish my movie about Harry Hong, and it'll be a short film, and I'll submit it to festivals. And so that's how it all started. And sure enough, I made a kind of weird little four-minute trailer featuring Harry with, like, you know, crazy chiptune music and stuff, and posted it. And I think I got my 1500 bucks in, like, two days. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I was... I was like, wow, that, that worked. That was great. And somehow that Kickstarter campaign just set off a chain reaction where like everyone in the world who was interested in this, or at least in the United States, started emailing me. And it, the whole project just came to me. I mean, I, everyone I needed to know just started popping up in front of my face. And the movie just grew and grew and grew to where I realized I had to make it a feature. So I sort of had to retrofit the Kickstarter money and... I went ahead and proceeded with a classic investment filmmaking investment structure where I actually, you know, had investors and a return on investment and shares and all that kind of thing. So you put, but you put some of your own money in, you had Kickstarter money and then you had investors. Is that the structure? That's right. I mean, I invariably you end up spending some of your own money, even if you try not to, but yeah, I raised, uh, you know, the bulk of the uh, budget of the film was through private investment and, you know, like I said, at the time, Kickstarter was brand new and the whole idea of crowdfunding was brand new. So I didn't really realize I would have a chance to crowdfund the entire budget, which now, of course, I realize I very possibly could have. So for me, doing a really large Kickstarter like we're doing right now, that's a new experience. But I think I do have a long history with this kind of thing. All right. So let me ask you the hard question is, is how did it pan out financially? Your, your, uh, the film came out in so 2011. It was released. Correct. And it's, you know, it's on sale. I can go to IMDb. You can go there and search an ecstasy of order and I can watch it instantly on different services. I can buy a copy of it. Um, what's the, so, you know, this is always the tricky thing with self-driven projects and especially with Kickstarter ones is how do you feel like it turned out now uh, looking back after three years? You know, that's been a tough question. I've definitely uh, gone back and forth on that. It is one of my most personal, it's been a personal struggle in a way because you know when you do these things by yourself you're a filmmaker and you know primarily that's what I am is I want to do the work but if you want people to see your work and you want to try to make money off your work you also have to be a businessman and overall you know the the movie's sort of hovering near the break even point uh, financially speaking I, I'll just leave it at that I won't get into the details <laughs> but that's but, actually that's not a bad place to be because I think aren't I thought most films 
shouldn't say most films. I mean, when you get outside the big studio, but I thought most independent films actually have a really hard row. Like, I don't know how many make it to a break even point even, much less um, make money. But my understanding is a fairly small number. People invest in independent films without necessarily having any expectation they're really going to see their money back. Yeah, it's it's uh, that sort of mid-range sort of Sundance movie budget of yeah. like a million or half a million. I really don't see how you could make your money back on those films because the experiences I've had, uh, you're just struggling to, you know, grossing $100,000 through VOD is an amazing achievement. So I don't really, that's a mystery to me. It's a world that I'm not fully in. I think that the people involved in those kinds of films, those sort of mid-budget films, are really just hoping to make a name for themselves. I don't think there's much, and I actually went to a talk where a woman who had a film in Sundance and a film in Toronto and stuff like that, said the same thing. She's like, this, these films don't make money, basically. So if you're doing a micro-budget like we're doing, there is a chance, but it's literally only in the micro-budgets. Yeah, and I have, I have a friend who shall remain nameless who made a documentary for, I, like, the low six figures and um, never made that money back. It was, it was through investment, and the investment opportunity up front was like, look, don't expect to make this money back. So to have the ecstasy of order, you know, break even point yeah. in sight is actually a, a pretty interesting achievement. Well, and it could sell for. That's the other thing is the, the advantage of making a film. You know, of a lot of documentaries is they don't age out. This is a slice in time you made, as opposed to um, necessarily like an advocacy documentary, of which there are many now, which people often don't give a darn if they make a cent off because it's an advocacy thing. They're funding it to make a statement like a movie like Citizen Coke, which raised its a uh, lot of money on Kickstarter and through other means. Uh, it may actually wind up doing well enough to recoup costs, but it's really an advocacy uh, film and it'll age like things will change. People will die. Uh, the regulation will change or we'll all, we'll all be beholden to our Coke masters. We'll find out the <laughs> spoiler. We don't know. Um, but, but ecstasy of order, um, like King of Kong, like a lot of these championship movies, because they're a slice of time, uh, you'll be able to watch this in 10 years and, and it'll, because you were filming about something that at the time you filmed it, the Tetris that people were playing was already a nostalgia antique thing. It's not going to age worse. It'll probably age better. Yeah. I mean, that's really why I'm proud of it is, I fully believe that Tetris, even if it takes beyond the point that I'm dead, at some point Tetris will be a, That's a something real to look forward to. Mental, well, you know, like I just know, I know that at some point it'll be a mental Olympics kind of thing where it'll be a worldwide sport. I really fully believe that, and it's not happening. I've taken steps. I actually run the tournament, and Chris is the head referee at the tournament here in Portland, where all the stars of the movie convene every year, and, and all these new people to compete. And we have an awesome time and we have people biting their nails in the audience and it's just such a spectacle, but it's not, there's problems with, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of having the game be formatted across nations and stuff so it's always the same game because yeah. everyone plays a different version. So there's this tricky element to making it a sport, but I'm... Still working on that, actually. Oh, so it is, it is an advocacy film. But, <laughs> kind but, of. But, so let me, well, that's that question, though. And um, I, mean, I think this gets to the heart of some of the – this is the – you know, there's the, the new disruptors is my tagline. But I'm looking at – in many ways, there's uh, you know, all these issues. Funding, uh, prototyping, producing, manufacturing, distributing are all these elements. And it, it happens in film um, as well as if you're making a, you know, a gadget or a piece of software. Uh, funding has always been a 
whole mess with making movies, you used conventional and non-conventional, or now I guess they are mainstream ways, but you know, crowdfunding even a few years ago was not a conventional tool, and now it's totally in everyone's toolkit. Why do people continue to invest in movies, independent movies, knowing that the likelihood of them even seeing part of their money back uh, is low? What drives people to be an investor in a film beyond, let's say, these advocacy movies where they think they're specifically doing a social good, like you know, bringing down big oil or something? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that precisely. I can give a little insight into the investors in my film is that they really, most of the community community that invested in Ecstasy of Order were um, sort of the top tier uh, collectors of Nintendo-based paraphernalia. Mm. Uh, and, and I had no idea, but these cartridges, if you have a sealed cartridge of Zelda or something like that, it's worth you know thousands of dollars. And um, one of our top investors, I went to his house uh, in North Carolina, and his entire third floor of his house was a Nintendo museum. Wow. So he was investing, even though we have, he got shares and, you know, all that sort of thing. He really didn't care about that. He just wanted to have his name on a movie about his favorite game. And it's that simple. I think every movie, if you're, on, if you're so rich that you're investing in an independent film that maybe has some sort of B-list actors in it, you just think it's cool. I mm-hmm. think they're just, it's a glamour investment, sort of like, you know, here in Portland, Paul Allen owns the Blazers. It's fun. I, the, owning a sports team is a terrible idea financially. No, not anymore. I don't know. That's a, whole, that's a whole mixed bag. It used to be, and now it's less so. But You know what I mean, though? It's a high risk. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. If, no... if every rich person just invested in things that were very safe and very, you know, smart, uh, we'd have a much less diverse sort of interesting culture. Luckily, they still think it's fun to put money in this sort of thing. So, well, and and to sort of segue into what we're doing now, the we see a very active community around Dogecoin specifically, but also other altcoins, other things that are not Bitcoin um, communities that, frankly, are just. They are enthusiastic, often for technological reasons to begin with, and then they discover this community online. And then what the, the niche we're trying to, or the, the, yeah, I mean, I guess we're trying to fill that niche of explaining to everyone who is not in that community, what is this community? <laughs> what is this technology? Why does it matter? And, and why are these people so passionate about it? So part of when we look at, like, why would someone give money to a movie about, uh, you know, electronic currencies, it's partly because there are literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are on a daily basis incredibly enthusiastic about this technology and find it very difficult to explain to their friends mm-hmm. in any way, technologically or, or socially. And so to be able to make a film where we say, here are some personal stories of people who invented it and who use it every day and who run businesses that take it and sort of normalize that and, and say, this is not abstract. This is actually happening and let's show that. That that's valuable. That's to really us. smart. Yeah, I think on an emotional level, or even if it's subconscious, you know, the people that would be backing our cryptocurrency film, it's it's a process. It's a step towards legitimizing their passion or or explaining it to the world. You know, in a way, this will be my third documentary. All three of my documentaries, I want them to be good. I want them to be genuine form of journalism, but. They also spotlight my own hobbies. So in a way, it's kind of like you were saying, you know, competitive Tetris. My first movie was about noise music. Um, and that was a great example because I thought it was crazy that no one had ever, so many people never even really had heard of noise music. And I thought, well, everyone knows about abstract painting. Why don't people know about abstract sound? 
And so it was me just wanting to shout from a mountaintop, like, this exists. This is very cool. Everyone needs to know about it. And I think that people intuitively understand that that's what I'm doing with cryptocurrency. And that's the value for them, at least I hope. Well, and this is distinct from films that are maybe about a specific person. You started out making the Tetris film thinking it was going to be about one person and spread it into the community because it sounds like it you you got a response that made you feel like it was much bigger and there's a bigger story there. I was thinking particularly there's a documentary that I love about Andy Goldsworthy who's a – Oh, I don't recall. He's a site-specific uh, artist, maybe. And um, what is the film called? Rivers and Tides. And it follows him around, and you see him make this work. And a lot of his work is ephemeral. If a camera didn't go with him, you wouldn't see it, which is part of the point. It's part of what he does is that he makes both ephemeral and non-ephemeral art. He makes art that's hidden, so you have to know where to go and find it. And um, so the camera allows us an insight into someone, both their working methods and their work um, and the stuff that they're doing. And that's, a, I think, a very different experience in trying to find a community that has a hard time explaining itself to other people. Although in both cases, like all documentaries, it's an explainer. I came away understanding a lot more about the broader subject of what he, of, of the area in which he works as well as his own work. And watching a film about uh, competitive Tetris, you come away knowing the specifics as well as all the stories. And I guess that's your, your intent, but that there's the community aspect, you know, you have to find, how do you find Andy Goldsworthy films? If you were trying to fund this river movie didn't exist, how would you fund a film like this? You have to go to conventional funding sources because there may not be a way to find all these people in one places, one place, but you can find all the Tetris fans in the world online. You can find all the people interested in cryptocurrency online. It gives you access to a whole different pool of people uh, who may want to make this come into being. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're they're literally on one or two subreddits. I mean, that's, <laughs> it, it's a very focused thing. And uh, one of the things in leading up to the Kickstarter is I've I felt this kind of, um, I guess, sine wave of self-confidence where at times I'm like, there are tens of thousands of people every day who are so excited about this. They will watch any YouTube video about this topic. And the next day I'm like, oh, I don't know. This is so, this is so obscure. Um, but the rest of me, the, the other thing you have to think about when you're doing a film project that will take a year and a half to two years is what will be happening in the world in like right. 2016. Like, so my theory is that by 2016, Either cryptocurrency will be like pretty mainstream or somewhat mainstream or will have crashed and burned in spectacular ways. So part of what we're doing is we already do have some of that story of the, the sort of origin stories, but we're kind of turning it on, you know, turning on the camera and running around following the, the ephemeral stories with the expectation that this is changing so rapidly um, that we'll capture something as it goes. And that there is some anxiety associated with that. You want to have a thing where you know you know what your film is going to be about. I'm just going to follow Andy around until he does something cool. Right. Uh, right? But in this case, we... It's we, also non-perishable. I mean, even if he dies, yeah. not to be macabre. But it's, uh, when you have a subject, if they're still productive and working, uh, then eventually you produce a film. And if it's in six months or six years, there's less of a concern about it unless he's so au courant that by then no one cares. Right. Right. And, and in our case, we... There are there are very many moments, even so far in the five months of making the beginning of the movie, where we've looked at each other and been like, "Is this happening? Like, is this real life?" <laughs> um, you know, and just just sitting there being like, people are 
creating money out of electricity and creating communities out of enthusiasm, which, of course, I guess that's what all communities, well, not all, but, you know, the good ones are. But seeing this happen and seeing new businesses and just new segments of stuff arising, that seems interesting. And then every time we sit down with someone, like I guess it was a couple weeks ago, uh, we sat down with the guy who made the Doge tip bot on Reddit, which is a way of sharing your Doge coins with other people. So you put up a funny picture, I can tip you for that uh, using this this very simple, uh, I basically leave a comment with a special tag in it and it transfers some money to you. Um, we interviewed the guy, Josh Moland, who invented that and is now about to turn it into his full-time business. I mean, a thing, Dogecoin did not exist until mid-December of 2013. Josh Moland had a different job, a pretty good one. Now Josh Moland is like seeking VC funding for his new full-time job based on a thing that didn't exist six months ago. So when I ask a guy like that, a very intelligent and talented person, I'm like, what does it feel like to work all day on a thing in a, in a that's based on a universe that didn't exist six months ago? He's like, it's amazing. It's incredibly scary. And all the people we talk to have the same feeling of like, I have somehow attached myself to a moving train. And when when we keep having that experience and talking to people, um, we felt like, well, look, the train is moving. <laughs> we need to run behind it with our cameras. Uh, we just need some money, right? Like we just need enough money to eat while we're doing that thing. Um, and then we, we show the results. It's a hilarious point to be at because uh, you, know, you could either be capturing the upswing of something that's huge or you might capture its collapse and be there for it. And then either way, the movie – I mean you know, if things are neutral, I think it's very unlikely that uh, cryptocurrency will stay still. Like that seems impossible. Right. And, and your focus on Dogecoin is particularly interesting because it's like a little bit of a weird blip and the odds of it surviving are sort of unknown. Maybe they're very low, maybe not. I don't, I'm not sure there's a way to predict it as opposed to Bitcoin as a more general case or cryptocurrency in general. And I think it's an interesting area for you to have gotten involved in. Again, like the, this, um, there's all these meta themes and everything we're talking about is you're funding a movie about how people are dealing with new ways of using new things to create money to fund thing. Okay. And then they're raising money for the ventures they're using to make things that fund things. Um, it goes deep there, but, but, um, but I think, I mean, Bitcoin is, I don't want to say it's like the ultimate disruption because I don't think it is, but I think the principles underlying cryptocurrency are going to transform the economy, even if Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies completely fail to be interesting in the long term. Um, and I have some doubts. I did an article for the economist, uh, in autumn of 2013 about it was uh, Bitcoin under pressure was the title they gave it. And it was about what are the things that could cause the currency to melt down? Like what are the practical and they didn't even include really security issues, which have been discovered or uh, uh, cryptography issues. Um, or even implementation issues, sort of about like this thing is growing so fast, it's so superheated. Uh, you know, what could go wrong? And there's a lot of things that could, although there's a lot of mechanisms to protect against it. And it, so it feels like you're going to be inside. And that, I mean, that's Bitcoin and Dogecoin is, um, is a lot smaller, uh, thing as a, as a currency. It's got a lot less money in the real world, I guess, um, that it can translate into, but it still seems like you're following a machine that's, heating up so fast there's no way to know whether it blows up or they figure out how to cool it off yeah well there's a series of threads built into that and one of them is actually technological uh, when you make a new coin there are some 
math decisions you make. And one of the things that, that Billy Marcus told us when we first sat down is he said, I, and let me back up a little bit. When you make up a, a coin, you can effectively say, these coins get distributed over a schedule, over a period of time. Well, well we should, I mean, let's even back yeah. up. Let's back up until the Paleolithic age. No, sorry. Let's back up. <laughs> one, one more step is that when, so Bitcoin is open source software, right. the underlying principles. It was created by somebody whose identity ostensibly is still unknown, despite what was it Newsweek says they think they found him. Satoshi mm. Nakamoto is the, <laughs> probably a pseudonym, not the guy's real name is the follow they found. Uh, but there was a, you know, built on earlier work, there were mathematical papers that were written, and then early implementations and the fellow ostensibly responsible for it disappeared. But the software persists. And the Bitcoin Foundation, uh, which has no actual authority as such, it has the authority of maintaining software that everyone involved in the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem has to agree uh, by a certain threshold to accept in order to move new features into the currency. So that's the template. But the template is because it's open source, uh, someone can take it and create their own currency. And that's what happened with Dogecoin. Exactly. So every day, well, literally, there are new variant uh, coins, which are called altcoins, uh, that are based substantially on Bitcoin. I mean, it really is. At one point, Billy says, it's Bitcoin with a dog on it. You know, yeah. I mean, there are technological differences for sure, but... You search and replace bit and you replace <laughs> it with doge. But then yeah, seriously, yeah. there is like, there is like variables you're changing, but yes. Yeah. And you, I mean, you put comic sans, you know, in the client or whatever, but there are actual choices he made that will affect how this currency works in the next, uh, literally in the next year. So one of the things he did is he said, he said, well, how long do I think the life of an internet meme is? And he estimated it at about a year and a half. And I forget his basis for that. I think it was like, uh, you know, looking at YouTube videos that went viral. And he said, how long does a, a meme stay funny? And he just decided on a number and said, okay, well, so for my Dogecoin, which is based on a Doge meme that was pre-existing, I'm going to set this schedule upon which the, the you know, the coins are, are spread out to the world to be a year and a half long. And after that, no more coins. And that's part of any cryptocurrency is setting a schedule. But for things like Bitcoin, it's a much longer time horizon. And on the other end, you have other kinds of altcoins. Like there's one called 42, a Douglas Adams-themed coin, where there will only ever be 42 coins. Huh. Whereas Bitcoin, or sorry, Dogecoin, uh, he had to pick a number of coins. Like what, what is the number of these little tokens that will exist and he literally thought, what's the most absurd number I can think of? And he made an Austin Powers joke and made it be a hundred billion. So that like, you know, each Dogecoin is worth almost nothing. Like it is vanishingly valuable. But that was one of its great strengths because you could hand somebody a thousand Dogecoin and it's worth pennies. So hooray, you got a thousand Dogecoins. Sounds a lot better than like I threw some pennies at you. Yeah, that's that's the a big reason that the coin took off is uh, if you're not familiar with Bitcoin, Bitcoins are, I think, now worth about 600 bucks. They've been as high as 1,000, I think. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're actually, if you were to literally buy a burrito with Bitcoin, it's like 0 0.00000387 Bitcoins to buy your burrito. And people don't like that. That's just no fun. It's weird. And you do get mistakes. You know, when you, there's that many zeros for every transaction, you could accidentally give someone 50 bucks for your burrito if you're not paying attention. So that's sort of one of the problems that's cropped up with Bitcoin that Dogecoin just, you know, accidentally solved by making a hundred billion. Because now, if you're tipping someone because they drew a funny picture, you can give them a thousand Dogecoins, which it's uh, the term Josh Moland of Tipbot uses is unit bias. Uh, mm -hmm. The unit bias is very strong, and people like big numbers. They like big whole numbers, and honestly, I think that's the 
biggest part of Dogecoin's success as far as like the early stages and people adopting it. Well, this is yeah, this is that uh, thing like Berkshire Hathaway stock, Warren Buffett's uh, conglomerate. Uh, it currently trades for one hundred ninety-two thousand dollars a share on the the A <laughs> shares, and they released a, they created a a, a B share, which is I forget what it is. It's a fraction, and uh, Apple just split as we uh, talked just recently split its stock seven for one, so it was uh, almost I don't know six hundred bucks or five hundred bucks, and and it is exactly the same value but split into a different way, and um, there's. There's some psychology about it. Companies think that their stock is overpriced or markets do when it gets too high, even though it doesn't matter. It's the same dollar total. You're just doing yeah. the different math. But yeah, that's it's very common. You know, there's also an issue here. One of the reasons I don't think I've ever had anybody on the show to talk about Bitcoin-related businesses is not that I have a problem with Bitcoin at all as an, as an industry, but because a lot of the things to do with Bitcoin are – um, are wasted. Um, and I think you were hinting at that too, is that one of the choices with Bitcoin and not, not to get too far afield, we'll come back to your film and to Kickstarter and all that. But I think this applies is that, you know, I like to promote things that are productive and either they're creatively productive or they're societally productive. I don't really want to promote a thing that, um, wastes, um, energy. And there's these, there's a, some old science fiction stories about a world of plenty. I'm blanking out of the name right now. I'll see if I can put it in the show notes. But uh, these stories happen in a world where everything had become so fully automated and productive that if you were poor, you had to consume more because there was no way to slow the machine down. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you were rich, you didn't have to consume as much. But there was sort of this whole uh, – and and the, the stories – There's a, I think there's two stories about it. Um, and it was you know it's parables about the, the dangers of scarcity and plenty. And uh, Bitcoin falls into that where it would be one thing if we were just using, you know, let's say existing computational cycles, like the way that people donated their cycles to um, calculate uh, the search for signals that might indicate extraterrestrial life, the SETI project, SETI at home, and uh, the folding projects and all of these things. I can put some links in that were unused computer cycles put to a different purpose. But with Bitcoin, because they chose a specific computational algorithm and the system is designed to adjust for the total computational power across the entire network, you have cities worth of power now being devoted to calculating nonsense because of how they set the computational <laughs> right. hardware. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. you know, I can put some links into the details for people interested, but it's, it's unproductive. And so I don't want to, I would never have someone on the show who made Bitcoin mining hardware because I feel like this is a terrible thing for our society. We are literally pouring coal, you're burning coal or wasting power generation that's right. clean for this. But there are choices you can make. And so some altcoins, and I think Dogecoin is one of them, right, chose an algorithm that instead of having ever-increasing complexity, it's more of a, a linear scale. So you don't need to have a trillion times the power every year that you had before. You can have a much smaller scale, and so it's much more approachable. Is, is that right? Didn't Dogecoin pick that as well? The difficulty goes up. I don't think it's it, – it basically has – by dint of not being worth as much money, has not had the same level of arms race. Mm -hmm. And also because of the 18-month thing, like it's, it's already become unprofitable for small miners to work on Dogecoin. Let's take a pause so I can tell you about the rest of this week's indie advertisers. 
B is issue tracking made fun on your Mac. The company calls it futuristic issue tracking. It's a simpler, faster, and more powerful way to work with your Jira, Fogbugs, or GitHub issues. B lets you combine multiple projects together into single lists, create custom rules to organize your issues, and it also has great timesheet management for you to track and export your time spent. B, that's B-E-E, is $29.99, and it's one of those applications that you'll live in all day. Download the free trial today at neat.io. That's N-E-A-T dot I-O. Chroma Videos is a service for developers that makes it quick, easy, and affordable to get a professional promotional video for your Mac or iOS app. In order to cut through the noise today, it's critical to have a quick, simple video explaining the key features of your app to your potential customers. Chroma works with you to create a video that perfectly conveys the message you want to get across. For more information and to get started right away, visit chromavideos.com. That's chroma, C-H-R-O-M-A, videos with an S dot com. Do you love word puzzles? Wordundrum is a game for iPhone and iPad that some have described as Sudoku with words. Imagine a crossword without any clues. Your challenge is to fill in the blanks so that every line spells a word both down and across. It's challenging, but you'll pick it up fast. The free game comes with 18 levels. These help you train up and test your puzzling prowess, but there are over 500 more levels available for purchase. So once you get into the flow of things, you can keep going. Wordundrum was created by a small group of Canadian independent developers with a passion for puzzles and design, and it shows. Try your skill today by looking up Wordundrum on the App Store. That's W-O-R-D-U-N-D-R-U-M. Wordundrum. The Novelist is a quiet, introspective game that focuses on a single question. Can you achieve your dreams without pushing away the people you love? The game is set in a coastal summer home with the novelist Dan Kaplan and his family. He's trying to write the most important book of his career while also balancing the needs of his wife and son. You play as a ghostly presence that can peer into their lives, their thoughts, their memories, and help them choose the paths they take. Every choice has a cost. Each playthrough offers a unique story based on your choices. The Novelist is currently on sale for 50% off. Visit thenovelistgame.com. That's all one word, thenovelistgame.com, for more details and to buy a copy for Mac, Linux, or Windows. Give our indie advertisers a try. And now back to the podcast. Oh, we should talk about so people who so yeah. always early adopters in altcoins often uh, can accumulate a huge amount of of you know not wealth but they a huge amount of currency that can then ostensibly translate into wealth later if they can exchange it into other currency. So with Dogecoin, uh, so the computational power needed relative to what the exchange value is now that's not profitable for new people to enter. I mean, it depends on on whether you have big piles of hardware, but basically no. I mean, oh, that's you know, a fascinating problem then. Well, it's an, it's an inflection point, right? Mm-hmm. And they they know that the, you know you that's a good problem to have if you're creating a, a currency, right? Like the currency has become uh, sufficiently valuable and established that there are a lot of people trying to mine it, and the the Dogecoin folks call it uh, the halvening uh, when <laughs> when the reward value gets cut in half. Yeah, but it no, like every so dramatic. The it's every is approaching. It's but... every like six weeks, every uh, two months, something, something like that. Something like that. There's a schedule. And I, I mean, I admit to some 
some willful level of technical ignorance because I want to ask people on camera, listen, explain to me the time the happening yeah. happened, the, the first one, right? And they, they, you know, get into it. But so when that occurs, it, it basically means lower payouts for everybody who's mining. And the happening has now happened like many, many times. So unless you have a big beefy rig of stuff, you're a little bit out of luck. And there's also a whole technological thing related to these things called ASICs that are now coming out. And suffice it to say, like, we're going to talk about that stuff in the documentary, like the tech stuff. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating. It, it makes me. I'm I'm totally fascinated by it, even while I'm appalled by parts <laughs> yeah. of it. I'm not appalled by the people. The, yeah. Can I address the power consumption issue? Yeah, real oh yeah. Quick? I just want to. I want to offer the counter argument to that, even though I don't know that I necessarily believe in it. The, <laughs> yes, <please. laughs> the, the people who are really passionate about cryptocurrency as sort of a revolutionary force that's going to displace, you know, fiat currency and the banking system. I mean, they would tell you that you know, the process of making cash and these giant banks that, you know, have to have skyscrapers and, you know, a building on every corner are far more wasteful. But, you know, I don't think that's a discussion we're having is that that's literally cryptocurrency is going to replace the whole economic system as we know it. Although there's a certain group of people that that's what they want. This can be and, somewhere in the middle, like with a lot of these kinds of financial innovation, is that is that you already see – it's been interesting how fast the regulators got involved, which I assume will be part of your story, as in so many industries where there's disruption. Uh, you know, Currency is the ultimate thing that governments want to protect. and But how uh, accepting and interested it, regulators and um, other people in the financial industry are about it, like they don't – they may discard part of it like, yeah, well, we don't think a dog on a coin is useful or you know, this Bitcoin <laughs> thing, like, yeah, there need to be more control. But they're like, ah, the cryptographic part. Oh, you know, a distributed ledger, like all of these detailed little things that don't exist as balances in our current system. Like those are clearly of great interest. Yeah. And one thing I want to clarify is that, you know, there are actually several films out there dealing with Bitcoin. And um, I don't want to diss them, but there is a there's a class of of person and of uh, discussion, which is basically rah rah Bitcoin. Like this is, this is clearly going to change the world. It's going to change everything, and we're trying very hard to not be that, because we're we're trying to step back and say, let's look at the actual effects of this. And there are positive effects. There are negative effects. And ultimately, we're not convinced it will change the world, or that the part that everybody thinks will change the world will be the one. You know, like the 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 blockchain, that distributed ledger that you refer to. We have some good uh, discussions with, with with folks who say that piece of this technology might really be what what is important in the That's, future. I'm I'm on that boat. I'm on that yeah. boat because it's a it's a it's distributed trust in which nobody has to trust anybody else, but it's it can be validated. I should also point out the power consumption thing. So I don't seem like I'm a, I don't want to be a Bitcoin bigot either. In case they come in charge, <laughs> I, 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 I will welcome our new currency masters. Well, but it, is that is different currencies, different altcoins? Oh, actually, there's literally one called what's it? Uh, Litecoin rather that uh, and some other altcoins specifically chose. Algorithms that do not have this crazy power consumption requirement so that you – I mean right now like there are Bitcoin you know, uh, data centers being built in places where either electricity isn't metered and there's government corruption or where solar power you know, is available or you know, all kinds of things in order to feed that, that beast. But that's not how all altcoins are constructed and conceivably Bitcoin could even give that up. So that is not an upper limit. Um, you know, they don't have to consume the entire power output of the planet in the future for for bitcoin to work let's let's back out to i got us deep into the bitcoin thing because i think it's fascinating and i think it is again it's a meta story or a meta meta story about 
the change in economics and that uh, the rise of something totally new that's an economic tool is driving your interest in telling a story. And then so let's back up to the all right, you have a very compelling story. You guys have worked together before on a documentary. Adam, this will be your third film. And you think and you know, I shouldn't say you think, you know, there are millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people worldwide who are both the potential audience of funding. That'll be smaller, I realize, and the potential audience of watching this. So I want to know how this shapes where you went for funding this time around, how you structure that. And then also, since we were talking about three years out from Tetris, let's also not forget the issue of distribution and how you will plan to release this film and its long tail of of the future um, as well. So let's start with the money side. You have a Kickstarter that's launched by the time this podcast is aired. And uh, that's a very conventional way to f- to to f- uh, fund a film. Did you think about going to the Dogecoin Reddit and just saying, "Hey, we want to make a movie. Here's some sample stuff," and and just tip us, and we don't have to go the crowdfunding route? Uh, the, you know, with the Kickstarter, we can just do it directly. Was that a thought at some point? Yeah, we did do that actually, yeah. um, <laughs> in a small scale. Um, this is one of the greatest parts of the story, which is that. Um, they got together and raised 67 million Dogecoins, which at the time was about $50,000 to sponsor a NASCAR in one of the big NASCAR <laughs> races. And this was really, you know, even bigger than sponsoring the Jamaican bobsled team in that it caused a real stir. I mean, I've it was a huge news story. It was everywhere. And um, we were like, if we're doing this, we're serious about this, we have to go. But uh, going to one of the big NASCAR races is a bit more of a everything was more expensive and, you know, we needed access and things like that. Yeah. So we, uh, we just decided, let's try it. Let's see if we can get a Dogecoin fundraiser going to send us to Talladega. And, uh, I think we asked for, gosh, I can't remember. It was something around 2,500 bucks. How many Dogecoins was it? Like three, five million, it's like 5 million Dogecoin. Yeah. And, uh, which is a lot. I mean, I want to point out a lot of these fundraisers were like, Looking for one million Dogecoin or two million or, or open ended. Mm-hmm. So asking asking someone to give you effectively twenty five hundred dollars worth of U.S. dollars to make a YouTube video or whatever. Well, it was a scene and, of our documentary. I mean, you know, but that's where I think it's tricky. Is this uh, is this a standalone thing or is it going to be in the movie? And all that gets confusing. But the the bottom line is we're going to cover the Doge NASCAR, and we and you know I had a sense of urgency about it. I was like, if I'm doing this project, this has to happen. And luckily, the, commu- the Doge subreddit community responded and sent us to Talladega, so it worked out. <laughs> yeah, it took about three days, I want to say, for us to – we got <laughs> – they just started throwing internet money at us, and so, you know – Well, you have – there's this curve, too. We were talking about it earlier is you've got people – some of it is funny money to them. Like it has an exchange value if they cashed it all out, but people who are in early enough – accumulated a lot of the currency and there are only certain i mean liquidity of altcoins is a big deal so sometimes it's very difficult to get actual cash out so giving it to someone to do something productive seems like a reasonable alternative if it costs you almost nothing to obtain it was difficult to cash out our five million doge coins yeah Uh, and this is something that i think people aren't aware of is the way that works is it's just like a stock exchange where there has to be a buy order in order for you to get someone has to literally be waiting with money in their hand to buy those Dogecoins. And if that buy order doesn't exist, you're stuck with them. And and the fact is, is it's not, it's active, you know, for a relatively new thing. But, you know, I went on there and I had to sort of one by one respond to these buy orders and, and 
sell the Doge coins. It actually took a whole afternoon. Oh my gosh! But uh, when it was over, I had twenty five hundred bucks. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we've been there. We part of the pitch from Chris and I is we are cryptocurrency nerds. We've sat there and figured this stuff out, and it's been really fun. And I think it's one thing to read articles about it, but when you're actually there on the ground trying to figure out how to sell your Doge coins. It's a whole different thing. So it's uh, it's really interesting. And now how much are you setting out to raise for this campaign? Currently, we're looking at 72000 bucks. That's all in. Which used to be a lot of money in, in Kickstarter terms. Now, I don't think it's that – I mean, I shouldn't – I'm not trying to make light of it. But I think – I don't know what the median is. I'm not sure they've put that number out. But I think in terms of it being a reach, it's not like a crazy reach, especially for a film. It's probably, you know, it's probably in the – 50th or 60th percentile for films maybe, but I don't think it's in the, it's certainly not in the 90th and it's certainly not the 20th yet. Yeah. And we did a bunch of thinking about how do we budget this in a way that's fair and in a way that, you know, makes us, makes us so we can make a good film. And the good news is we already knew what it had taken to do ecstasy of order. Like we literally knew it, it was all done. It was in the can, it was distributed. So we were able to take that budget and extrapolate and say, okay, well now it's 2014. We're using a different type of camera, a different, you know, audio setup. It's the two of us, you know, it's a different, slightly different crew. And having done some of these shoots, we're saying, okay, this is what things cost these days. And it's funny what, you know, some things get driven kind of to zero, like the cost of storage and like, you know, flashcards and stuff. They're just, they're worth nothing. Whereas four or five years ago, they were like hundreds of dollars Although, and very precious. I'll, I'll point out, it's very funny. Uh, the folks who did uh, Strip, Fred Troder and uh, Dave Kellett, who are lovely, lovely human beings and made a lovely, lovely film about comic strips, past, present, future. Uh, they were tweeting the other day about, okay, we have... Uh, how are we going to store all these terabytes? Because they have all you know all the mixes and extras and HD and whatever. Like, we want to store this in an effective way. And I'm like, cloud. They're like, yeah, but it was going to cost us you know this you know thousand bucks a month to put it on the cloud and whatever. And so I was giving them some tips because Amazon has like a cold storage option that's just increasing the true stuff you don't need uh, very fast. So they'll put it offline and they can they can keep it redundant and whatever. But that's actually, that seems to be the one remaining thing is if you don't want to only store it on your own hard drives, you want a cloud backup video is still massive enough that you could have a, a nice data storage budget that will surely go down almost exponentially over time, but it's the remaining piece. Well, not to mention uh, 4K. I don't know if you've thought about that, but uh, mm -hmm. it gets... It gets crazy. Really this is the new four, this is the the four K is when you need that you have to film at four thousand four thousand lines right if you need that so that's a super above DVD the TVs are just starting to come out that support it and monitors and uh, but that's what you use for uh, for film projection now right the theaters are all four K yeah mm -hmm. our approach right now is or our current game plan is to shoot a lot of our prettier B roll stuff in four K just to keep it under control. Um, and things like interviews and actually long duration shots go ahead and stay just in HD. But, you know, that's another thing you have to look at is, will our film look obsolete in 2016 when it comes <laughs> right. out? That's the oh type God. of stuff you have to think about. And, you know, when I made Ecstasy of Order, I was carrying around a fire safe filled with mini DV tapes yeah. because of these very issues. Because I was like, I'm not going to just put the footage on a laptop and, and you know... Because I had the option of shooting to you know, SD cards and stuff, but I just was still an old man about it and found it the whole thing frightening. So I had my fire safe I was carrying around. And yeah. it's just if you think how archaic that already seems, <laughs> you know, it puts things in perspective of you don't know what's going to be the format next year. Well, the funny thing is we've we've invented our new technological fire safe, which is like. 
you know, Adam is, is in the edit bay with the big fancy hard drive and I come over and I duplicate that drive and I bring it back to my house and then I upload that to the cloud and then I put the hard drive in literally a fire safe and we have <laughs> yeah. the original media it was shot on. Like, you know, it's funny how much fire is still <laughs> like a concern. Well, you know, the Toy Story 2 story, right? Oh, uh, they'd lost a bunch of the renders? They, um, yeah, the whole film almost got lost. This is in uh, Ed Catmull's terrific book, Creativity, Inc., which I highly recommend. And I'll put a, a link in the show notes to an episode of The Incomparable I was on in which we did a book club about it. Really inspirational book um, because he talks all about failure, how they kept screwing up again <laughs> and again and how they yeah. thought they were so smart and realized they weren't. It's really lovely. But uh-huh. uh, he writes in there in some – like nail-biting detail, they thought they had proper backups. Something went dead. They checked and the backups weren't being made and they lost the data and they had uh, one of the executives or, uh, or lead director or something, she was on um, maternity leave and they'd rigged a right. backup to her house. Right. So she right. went home and had all of the backups. She's the only person who had the copies. If they hadn't do that, they would have to re-render like, I mean, not just re-render, they had lost the original character mm, files. So, um, yeah, backups. <laughs> I know, isn't that the funny part? That's what it comes down to is like, forget all this rest, the funding and everything else. It's the... Yeah. Uh, well, one thread I want to make sure we get to is um, XOXO and VHX, so distribution and and how XOXO actually played a part specifically in me getting involved in a bunch of this stuff. Uh, yes. And in fact, VHX either uh, will be um, the uh, chief of VHX, will be a guest in this program either before this episode or after due to time travel and um, wibbly wobbly things. So, uh, yes, we'll be talking to or have talked to. <laughs> VHX. I, can I can I just uh, endorse them briefly? VHX is awesome. They're pretty much doing the best job out there of digital distribution. I think their platform and and you know the way they do things is is the present and the future. I, I think that we, there was a big stumble with you know digitally distributing uh, films because of the whole piracy issue. And uh, I really think VHX kind of has done played a big part in coming up with a solution, um, which is digital rights management free content, yeah. uh, which basically amounts to if you're trusting your, con- your customers, they'll honor that. You know, you're saying, yes, we're giving you this movie. You actually have it. We're not going to try to lock it into some dumb format. And in return, we're just going to hope you work with us because someone's going to pirate. It only takes one person to pirate it in, in any case. Yeah, but, we know, uh, but every format gets pirated is the thing. This is, I mean, this is good on a discussion about independent production. Like when we released the magazine, the book, ebook d- editions, I'm like, I'm not putting DRM on them because A, I want everybody who buys it to be able to read it and everything. B, I know it takes three seconds to crack it. And if we protect it, people are more likely to crack it and post it because they'll feel like they're doing some kind of social good, however misguided. <laughs> right. uh, but if it's not protected, it's like, oh, oh, I think there's a different moral equation in people's heads who distribute things just because they know that there's no necessity for it. And um, I'm watching this as we speak. You know, the Amazon Hachette uh, dispute is still ongoing. I, I expect mm-hmm. it will be ongoing for a while. And uh, I keep wondering why don't publishers – just drop DRM because that's what locks people into Amazon. It's partly capability and an ecosystem and a store and customers. But if all the publishers did what the music industry did and just say, okay, DRM didn't work and I'm waiting for the film industry to actually eventually own up to it. And VHX seems like the leading light on this. Um, it seems like an advantage for you as an independent to not have to talk any of your customers through how to get it on their various devices or lock into iTunes or any format for it. 
Yeah, and I, w- I want to briefly comment on this because I, I was recently rewatching an interview with the indie game, the movie directors, um, James and Lazan uh, at XOXO. All that stuff, by the way, is on YouTube for free. You can go watch exactly. XOXO if you didn't go. No, no, very nice. Huh? And Jason Scott, who's also a friend of ours, um, was sitting there saying that Indie Game the Movie is a very big deal because in 2012 it is releasing simultaneously on like iTunes, you know, VOD services, and VHX, DRM-free. You can download it right now. And he's making that point to a room of creators who, who get that. But the thing that's funny is that was 2012, it's 2014 now, and we had effectively no question. I mean, we were like, how are we going to distribute this film? Clearly, we're going to do VHX. So in a short, a very short time span, that has become the norm and the clear business reality that that's a a net win for everybody, that of course we're going to go DRM-free. Of course people in different geographies will be able to download our movie and play it on whatever device they want. That's a really big deal. Like that has happened so fast that it, it all, I almost didn't notice it. Well, you can also, but you can opt into all of the different ecosystems as you want to. And, and Stripped, um, I'll, I'll link to that interview. That's what they did is they decided to release iTunes first to get the biggest publicity bang. And they said, look, we're going to release this. They didn't hide. They're like, we're going to release this on VHX. And if that's what you want, wait and buy it there. But if you're part of the Apple ecosystem, which a lot of people are, and you're planning to buy it on iTunes, like that's what you want it on, then buy it on the day we release or pre-order it because that'll push us as high as we can. And they became, I know they were the number one, they were the number one documentary, I think, for the day. And it was a great idea. They got, because everyone didn't, you know, doesn't in absolute numbers, if you pick the right time and there's not another major release, you can push yourself up there. And they pushed pre-orders. And then I think they did iTunes on day one. And I forget if it was day two, they did VHX and then they were on Google Play. But the fact that you don't have to be exclusive is also important. So whatever way you chose and because they didn't attempt to um, disguise it like, oh, you got to buy it on iTunes. Oh, now we have a DRM free version. They're like, no, our plan is multi-platform. But if you choose to, then this helps us because then more people will discover it. That's different too. Yeah. W- iTunes was very big for ecstasy of order. I think we were in the top 10 documentaries for several days. So that was for exposure uh, and, and for revenue. That was, uh, that was really great. But we didn't jump into the VHX thing till later. So we did a traditional kind of VOD across we had we were on Amazon and Google Play and all that stuff and Hulu and whatnot. And yeah, iTunes was, as far as exposure, a great tool. And I I, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, too down on on DRM because I think it does, especially in the Apple ecosystem, I think it does work for people. I think people that have all Apple products enjoy iTunes and that makes sense for them. But there's just a huge community of people for whom that makes no sense, and and they just don't want that. They don't feel like they own the product if it's locked into certain devices, and I I certainly sympathize with that. So I think both things have a place, right? And I I think that's the thing is is people who uh, it's when you have an option is the important part is if you can only get something in an ecosystem that's locked, like a Kindle, you know, a, a locked Kindle file or Kindle purchase or a locked um, iTunes movie purchase. Uh, that's a problem. But when you have alternatives, then you could choose to be in a DRM protected environment if you think that fits your needs. And and that's what I think people like about having diversity of choice and not being locked into. I mean, this is, you know, I'll bring up this word. I don't know if I'll wind up using it in every podcast in the future, but monopsony is a word that I was totally unaware of. And I don't know how many months ago, maybe a year ago or more, maybe before the um, uh, lawsuit, the Department of Justice lawsuit against uh, uh, Apple and booksellers. Um, 
And monopsony is a market in which there's only one buyer, really, or there's there's a, a buyer can set the price of things because they're dominant, uh, and the government is often a, considered a monopsony in certain areas. And Amazon uh, is a growing monopsony for uh, electronic books, and it lets them it gives them so much leverage. So the more so you don't just need many places to buy things from. You don't need you know situations in which there aren't monopolies, but you also need for you as independent. Creators, you need multiple places to be able to sell to avoid monopsony situations in which you can't set your wholesale or retail price at all. You have no flexibility at at, uh, at doing so. So that's a nice segue into uh, just recently we finished up a humble bundle that included ecstasy of order, and uh, I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. I think that really is one of the most innovative kind of pay pay what you want platforms, and being a part of that has been really interesting in this whole discussion of how do you make buying digital goods appealing for people? And I think that was a very interesting way, which is that we're going to take all these items. There's video games. There's video game-related documentaries. There's actually just some comedic short films in our bundle. Uh, I don't know how they figured out what they were going to bundle together, but it's pretty diverse. And you know, you may really have your eye on two or three of those things, and they literally just say, I think there's some minimum, but they say pay what you want. And one thing they do to kind of encourage people to pay a reasonable amount is they have a thing called beat the average. So certain things you have to unlock that item by paying more than the average person did. And it's just so clever to me. And I mean, I've been banging my head against that wall of how do you charge one, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks for something that isn't really a thing. It's just ones and zeros. I mean, I think that's the problem that I mean, XOXO, it's a big part of what they talk about at that festival. And it's really inspiring to see that clever of a solution. Well, you're using residual value, too, in a really clever way. Like, I know Humble Bundle, it'll sometimes be, you know, older books, but not unvaluable books. Or, you know, your film came out three years ago, and you'll keep selling it, but you're the, you know, you're well beyond the arc of sales. So, gosh, this, what a great way to get people talking about it again, no matter what you get for it, as long as it's above your cost of fulfillment, which is very low, since it's digital. Uh, whatever, you know, distribution cost there is, is going to be minimal, I assume. And, uh, uh, you know, tidbits, uh, the electronic publishing, where I've, I've written books for years in the Take Control series, they regularly do 50% off sales and on everything. And they don't always announce when it's going to happen. Uh, and the rest of the time, stuff is full price. But they have these bundles. You can buy three books and get 30% off. They do a lot of things to encourage people to buy a bit more in a, in a useful way. But even though there's always a 50% deal that's going to happen at some point, you know, in the next three to six to nine months, there'll be something. People know that. It doesn't seem to deter the regular flow of sales. What happens is during the 50% period, things go through the roof, especially older books that people otherwise wouldn't buy, but we don't want to drop the price of because that devalues them on an ongoing basis. It makes them seem less worthwhile, and it affects the ability through channels to sell at the retail price, to give a wholesale price to a reseller. You know, if it's a $10 item, the reseller gets it for 5 they make profit. If you drop the retail price to $5 forever because the thing's out of date, you cut off channel sales as well. So the thing you're talking about, it's like whenever you've got something that's older but maintains value and permanently cutting the price doesn't make sense, that's a fantastic option. Yeah, and we it's funny, there's actually another benefit to the Humble Bundle, uh, which is fulfilled by VHX. And 
I didn't know about this until I was talking to um, Lizanne Pajot, who was the, one of the directors of Indie Game the Movie, and who now works with VHX. She's their film, <laughs> filmmaker ambassador. Oh, yeah, it's great. She just announced, like, by the way, they got married. They finally, after, yeah. um, they made honest people of each other because they finished the film. <laughs> and they, they posted something from the account. Hey, we got married, by the way. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you waiting all this time? They're like, yeah, kind of. We were busy until now. And yeah. now she's got this ambassador job. Yes. Well, and she made a, an interesting point, which I hadn't I hadn't even uh, considered. Which we were going to put like just a banner on the Ecstasy of Order page, which we you know did during the Humble Bundle. But the fact is, anybody who gets the movie um, and redeems it through VHX, they have the option to opt in and say, "Oh, I'm a fan. Contact me by email about other projects." And so, by basically not giving away, but by super discounting this film and letting it out there to many, many thousands of people. And some percentage of those folks come along and say, oh, wow, I redeemed this VHX code. I'm a fan. We are now now able to say, hey, guess what? Same director, same writer are making a documentary right now. We need your support. Go look at this right now. And we have a direct contact to somebody who just watched the film. So we do get this kind of knock-on effect of, of you know giving away something cheap and getting a possible backer out of it yeah get there's there's a, a acquiring names of people you can mail later who say yes i like that thing you did do it again a kickstarter campaign as you two gentlemen well know and as anyone who's run one figures out sometimes i actually told someone had a very very popular kickstarter campaign they launched another one i said make sure and uh let all your past backers know, go post an update. And they're like, oh my God, I can do that. I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it was, it's not like they really didn't understand. It just hadn't occurred to them because yeah. they thought of it yeah. as over. And I'm like, no, you have X thousands of people who they will probably hear about it through another way, but some won't. And that's money left on the table from people who want to support you. So a Kickstarter, a successful or unsuccessful Kickstarter is your mailing list for people who don't want anything. They want to opt into that and nothing else. It's your mailing list for the next project too. Yep. And, you know, fans are an invaluable resource. And frankly, one of the things that we, when we saw the cryptocurrency community, these people are fans of lots of things. <laughs> and we were like, you know, there's, there's an energy there. We want to tap into that energy and, and respect it like we respected, you know, the, the Tetris folks. Um, but whenever you see a, a really engaged community like that, let's <laughs> ask him for money you know i know That's... it's a funny thing as i saw i was just watching um sarah uh benincasa does um is a comedian and a writer uh is a kickstarter underway right now and she was posting some really interesting tweets I'll, I'll try to link to them about having trepidations about it that when she first saw kickstarter she's like why would i ask people money that seems for money it seems so needy and whatever and then once you're inside it you're like oh no people want to give me money they want these things to happen or they wouldn't do it so on one side it feels like a big ask a big needy cry for help and the other you're like no 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 this is a conversation people part of the conversation here is people give you money to make a thing happen that's their interaction with you to create a thing that comes into existence and you have to accept that it's part of a part of a conversation that it's a dialogue it's not give me money i don't care who you are well yeah i think it fits it really dovetails nicely with the concept of cryptocurrency it's sort of like a this consensus, you know, crowdfunding kind of fits in with that where I don't really feel like I'm asking for money. I'm kind of asking thousands of people to get together and hire me to do this um, because and hire me, frankly, at a very low wage yes, that's right. <laughs> to, to make this film. And I feel absolutely comfortable with that. And I think there was a time, like I said, when I first heard of Kickstarter and was asking for 1500 bucks to like drive to California or whatever, I felt 
awkward about it. And I know that feeling where you feel like you're asking for a handout. And, I, you know, we all have a few grumpy old man friends who uh, feel that way. <laughs> like, God, God, Kickstarter, you know, these rich white kids asking for free money. And I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> you know, we all know how hard filmmaking is. And I really want this job. I'm asking for this job from the public. And if they give it to me, I'll do my best. And if they, I kind of, on the other token, you know, I feel that, I feel really confident that this movie needs to be made and that people want it. But, you know, it, maybe it won't happen. We'll see. But I, I'm confident. I think it's a great topic to close out on briefly, too, is that, um, you know, 72 grand, you, first you take out almost 10% to Kickstarter, then you take out the remaining 90% for all your expenses. Right. And someday you guys may, you know, be able to, to pay yourself something from it. The Kickstarter I did for the magazine, I know I mentioned all the time, we did almost 57 grand, uh, which was fantastic. And I'm still like in awe of people wanting to make the thing happen. And I, you know, I did some math. I posted a Medium article about uh, the whole campaign um, recently. And, um, you know, I, maybe I made $5 an hour of my time. I don't, I don't know. Not very much. But I paid a ton of other people who I wanted to be part of it. We paid all the expenses and we did turn a, a small, you know, profit, like I say, which didn't cover my time. But I also got like, I can't even tell you how many feels like literal hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of experience I got out of it. It's, it changed my life. It changed about how I want to work in the future. I don't want to work that horribly hard for that little, but it was good to have gone through it. But it also changed my notions of what's possible and how I'm going to go forward. Even if I never do another Kickstarter campaign, which seems unlikely, I'll probably do some form of crowdfunding for things in the future. But I learned so much. There's no other way to do than go into that crucible. And some Kickstarters or crowdfunding campaigns, they'll raise so much money that the people involved actually get compensated well for their time, which is wonderful and appropriate. And others are going to be like these where it's it's like maybe at some point down the road, there's a return either from expertise or you sell enough copies of the film um, you know, down the line that it that's where you get your pay retroactively. But you guys, you're both working stiffs, right? So Adam, what, how do you spend your your days while you're working towards making this film? Oh, uh, you mean outside of filmmaking? Outside of filmmaking. Uh, you know, I still hold down a part-time bartending job. That's uh, how I keep things afloat. And uh, I take freelance gigs here and there. And, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just a regular guy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no trust fund. there's no trust fund that you're yeah. currently lounging on a pool full of gold doubloons. And, Chris, uh, and you're, right. Chris, you're a very busy um, – in fact, I know because I try to hire you to write things. So I know how busy you are. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get back to you on that article. Let's do. Uh, that's right. When oh. is it coming? In? It's actually Ooh. going in the, as we talk. It'll go in a future issue of the magazine. Uh, but you're and you're a working writer, even as you're trying to reserve the time to keep this project moving along. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. I mean, I I, I effectively wrote a book about how how do you make money, uh, or I actually titled how to not starve to death um, <laughs> as a freelance writer, right? Because yeah. this is a real real challenge, and the first thing you have to do is cut all of your expenses. Like you just you know the the first thing is live in portland right like we we're fortunate that we live in a place that granted it, it is getting more expensive but it I is think you mean vancouver washington now i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's an inside yeah. joke oh but they have sales tax there yeah it's it's like finding you know we've both been in portland for 14 years something like that 13 yeah so like a long time and we got here early enough i feel like i got here early enough to set myself up in a way that was um, financially sustainable. And I worked as a, a web guy and a, you know, a, a programmer for quite a while. But there came a point where I realized um, 
hey, guess what? Like, even with this meager income cobbled together from like 15 different sources, I can make my my bills. I'm not going to be dry. I, I drive a 15 year old car, you know, uh, and it's in imminent danger of constantly catching on fire. But that's okay, right? And like, you make that choice uh, as an as an independent person to say. I could be making a lot more money or I could be making this thing that I love and both ways I still get to eat food at the end of the day and to me that there's just no there's no option there it's a clear choice I think that's a lovely way to finish out is that right is that we have options in our lives and we have to make these choices but food at the end of the day is a, is a good thing <laughs> uh, yeah and not living in in downtown Manhattan is probably also good uh, Adam yeah. and Chris thank you for talking about your project and your past and your plans and good luck on the Kickstarter hey thanks for having us yeah thanks you can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.